The Happy Pair podcast is sponsored by Vivo Barefoot. Use the code HAPPYPAIR15 to get 15% off at checkout. Today's guest is with Galang Tubton. Galang means senior monk. He's a Buddhist monk for the last 30 years. And originally, he's an Oxford trained. He uh, studied in Oxford and at the age of 21 as an actor living in New York. He suffered with severe panic attacks and anxiety and heart issues. And this catalyzed him to become a monk at the, the young age of 21. He's been a monk now for 30 years and he's a senior monk at this stage and has gone through retreats as long as four years. He's a best-selling author. His first book was A Monk's Guide to Happiness and his most recent book is A Handbook for Hard Times, A Monk's Guide to Fearless Living, which is another incredible book. He's a renowned speaker and a meditation teacher. In today's conversation, we talk about the importance of cultivating a meditation practice because it really helps build inner resilience and helps us on our journey to inner freedom. He talks about overcoming some of the main issues that people have with meditation that my mind is too busy, I cannot sit still. He talks about addressing these. He talks about how moving towards these difficult and challenging times is one of the keys to unlocking happiness. Yeah, and, and how we can use the toughest times in our lives as catalysts to transform them into more compassion and forgiveness. It's a really practical conversation that left us deeply inspired and we will certainly be meditating tomorrow morning, at least our 10 to 15 minutes. And one of my favorite bits is that meditation doesn't have to be this structured thing that you do in isolation. It's the goal is to apply it to your daily life. And it's just taking small pockets of activities that you're doing and just be present with them. Uh, so, so thanks, but Tuckton, is that how we pronounce like? Tupton. 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 Tupton, like I know it's T-H-U-B. Tubton. Yeah. So my full name is Gelong Tupton and Gelong means monk. And then, so normally when I'm introduced, people say this is Gelong Tupton. And then when we're chatting, it's just Tupton. Okay. And what does Tupton mean? It means the teachings of Buddhism. It's a Tibetan name. You get given a, a Tibetan name when you become a monk. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I love that. That's very exciting. Well, it's a real, real honor to have you today. It really, really is in every sense. And I, we, we both really admire your work. I think it's fabulous. Yeah, it's really important. And your latest work, like I, I really, I, I think it's such a, you know, a handbook for hard times could be more relevant now than at any other time in the past. And particularly, I loved the, um, the kind of subline of it, which is how to live more fearless. Like I think yeah. it's, you know, a monk's guide to fearless living, which I think is, it's more prevalent nowadays than ever because it seems like fear is one of the dominant f emotions in our culture and it almost seems the product of pop culture. Pop culture nowadays, it almost feels like it's trying to make us feel a little bit more inadequate so that we consume a little more. So I'd love to camp out, like certainly to start off and talk about fearless. What is fearless? Because when I think of the word fearless, I think of it's some warrior, whether man or woman or whatever, with a sword in their back and the wind's blowing their hair and they're, yes, they are fearless. But that's not very relatable to most of us. I I see fearlessness as um, uh, uh, about trying to uh, be okay with what is. So to to be okay with difficult situations, to to stay strong, to stay mentally resilient in situations that would normally make us afraid or nervous. Um, so in a way, fearlessness is not just about having no fear. It's about understanding fear understanding what fear is and how to kind of move through it and be okay with with uh, the world we live in, which, as you say, is very um, much about uh, media inputs making us feel anxious all the time. 
uh, whether it be through social media, through the news, through kind of the way we use our phones. Uh, it's very um, constant notifications of things going wrong. And then for anyone listening who doesn't kind of get fear, what is fear? Like my understanding of fear is that it is an important feedback mechanism to tell us that our survival is at risk and adapt course, change course so that our survival can continue. So my understanding is fear is important. However, it's not not to feel it. It's to acknowledge it, but not let it take over the driving. I agree that it's an important biological um, fact of life in that we need fear in order to survive. And of course, in ancient times, we were hunter-gatherers or we were in out living out in the wilds. We had that fight or flight mechanism when we're in danger and then the body goes into that danger mode and we run from danger or we fight. And so it's built into us for survival. But the problem nowadays is we are having that fight or flight mechanism activated all the time when we're not actually in danger. We're sitting behind our desk in our office and we're receiving emails and text messages or we're um, at home or wherever we are. And the, the constant inputs um, that sort of make us anxious aren't actually putting us in physical danger. So we don't need the fear and yet it's still happening. Yeah, I certainly... It's like a herd of uh, stress hormones in our body. Yeah, I think it's probably, and maybe it's just the current generation because there's so much information and there's so much mechanisms with which to trigger us, which to trigger fear that I certainly see it. There's an anxiousness because there's, there's 15 text messages I haven't got to, and there's 20 WhatsApp and there's 7 million emails and I've got to go collect the kids and I've got to get stuff for dinner. And like, I suppose the root of that is probably fear, some form of fear or anxiousness of not feeling loved or not feeling that you're letting people down or these type of things. Is that how you would understand like fear being the root of these anxiousness, stress and these other type of challenging emotions? Yeah, in a way, fear is at the root of everything. So when we're when we're angry, it, we have a fear of feeling threatened and feeling something is trying to attack us. So we get angry as a kind of response to that. Or when we're filled with kind of addiction and need and craving, that's the kind of fear of not having so in a way, fear is, as you say, the root of it all and makes us go into all kinds of emotional states that make us suffer and make other people suffer. There's nothing wrong with emotions. I mean, human emotion is a natural thing, but the problem is when we're driven by negative emotions arising from fear and being driven by those emotions uh, sends us off balance and, and takes us further and further away from any sense of inner happiness. Yeah, yeah, because... Um... How I see it is that, and I see it myself as the greatest mirror of all, that certain things make me feel good, certain things make me feel bad. Like, I feel like a puppet quite often that, you know, someone says something nice to you or something good happens and, yay, I swell and I feel good. Something bad happens and, uh, you know, or someone says something bad and, oh, poor me, life is tough. And it seems like life is manipulating my inner landscape and affecting me too much, whereas... What, what I think what you are suggesting as a monk of 30 years is that we can live where the internal landscape can still remain beautifully calm and at peace and at in a state of well-being in a fearless kind of way, regardless of what's happening in the outside. I think that what you say is very true, that we are sort of the victim of our own lives in that things around us affect us so strongly. We're, we're happy if, we're happy when, we're happy because. And similarly with suffering, we seem to suffer because of things that are, are happening to us. And so we become sort of quite vulnerable in that, in that we are at the receiving end of life. And what I'm proposing is that if we meditate, 
we learn how to have a strong internal landscape and live from that place. And I'm not suggesting that we should stay in a kind of serene, sort of calm state all the time, but can we learn to handle life's difficulties from a place of strength? Then we become more the creator of our own existence rather than being at the receiving end all the time. That sounds beautiful. I think everyone listening is Yes, gone. please. Yes, I'll have some of that. So what? how do we do it? Well, meditation. And meditation is really a daily practice. It's, it's an exercise. And it doesn't have to be linked to any religion. Of course, I'm a Buddhist monk. And, and this comes from Buddhist philosophy. But the great thing about that is you can practice these techniques from any context. They don't have to be linked to any particular religion. But they are about daily Techniques are about daily training. And I think the reason why many people struggle to meditate every day is because they maybe make an assumption that it's more um, difficult than they really, they, they think it's more difficult than it really is because they think they're supposed to have no thoughts. You know, this is, this is where most people struggle in meditation is they sit down to meditate and then there's loads of thoughts and distractions. And then they think, well, how do I get rid of all of that? I, I, I don't know how to do it. And so maybe the approach is a problem from the start that we think of trying to clear our minds, which is impossible. And so that's not meditation and that just makes it more stressful. It's actually about learning to keep coming back to the present moment. So you do get distracted. You do have thoughts. You do have the busy mind. I do as well. I'm not sitting there all blissed out. I've got loads of thoughts and loads of distractions but I'm learning how to come back to the here and now again and again. And what that does is changes your relationship with those thoughts. So you start to become stronger. And is it that the thoughts will become less loud? They're, they're there and they're always there, but they just become more like a whisper in the background as opposed to right in the front round driving you. I think we need thoughts and we need emotions, but we need to be, I like the word driving. We need to be in the driving seat. Normally, we're not in the driving seat, are we? The thoughts and emotions drive us and take us in, usually quite often in a direction we don't want to go in. And so we start to suffer. But if we can get into the driving seat, then we can have thoughts and emotions that serve us well and help us to be more compassionate, more wise, more um, um, happy inside. So I don't think it's about the thoughts getting quieter, but it's about us getting into more of a sense of choosing how to think and how to feel over time. Yeah. Is, is it almost like, like the process of meditation helps us detach more from our thoughts and our emotions so that we can be more objective about it and more, you know, the driver, as you said? Uh, objective is a great word because it, it, that does suggest a sense of observing, sort of being able to see what's happening instead of being in it so much. I was, I was described how, you know, when you're angry or upset or um, feeling um, a sense of despair. And yet, if you're able to step back and see that you're angry and see that you're in a state of despair, that part of you that's the observer of your mind is is free. You know, the, the observer is not angry because the observer is looking at the anger. So it is about learning to, to step back and, and see what the mind is doing. But that's very, very difficult at first. So what we need to do at first is learn how to keep maybe using the breath as a way of coming back from the thoughts to the present moment so that we are um, changing our relationship with them and, and enabling us to step back more. 
Amazing. Okay, so so anyone listening who's gone, okay, this is great, Tubman. Brilliant for you. You're a Buddhist monk for 30 years. You've been meditating. I don't know how many years worth of meditation you've probably cumulatively um, added at this stage that you've you've really kind of you've flexed this muscle. Like you've got you're a, a Mr. Universe of meditation in a sense. Um I'm not. Not but but certainly in terms of you've put the time in. You've certainly put the time in. And lots of people listening go. Oh, I've got a busy life. Like my life is really busy. I've got three kids. I've got a job. We got to pay the mortgage, and I need to blah 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 whatever. You know, insert things of choice. Like, what would you say to that person in terms of starting? Like, in terms of because the first question will be, does it have to be ten minutes a day or five minutes or what is? How do I start this? Like, because that's usually the first hurdle to get over is the starting of it. Well, first of all, let me just say I I'm also really busy. You know, I live a busy life, and I. I, I write books, I give talks, I travel, I, I run centers. I've got a lot on my plate and I find that I can always find time for daily meditation. So it's not that, oh, you know, he's a monk, so he's got all the time in the world, it's easier for him. I have that challenge too of having a really full schedule, but I just know that if I meditate every day, it helps me to manage that schedule better. It helps me to stay strong. Back a number of years ago, probably about seven years ago, friend Tony Riddle said, lads, what foot size are you? And I was like, what do you mean, Tony? He said, I'm going to get you a pair of shoes that are going to change your life. And I was like, come on, it's a pair of shoes. Uh, he got us these black Vivo barefoot shoes. And since that day, the only shoes I wear, whether I'm on the farm, whether I'm going running, whether I'm doing whatever I'm doing, I only wear Vivo barefoot shoes. So much so last night, he we had a party and it was a fancy dress party and Stephen wore a tux and he wore his black Vivo barefoot normally shoes. Normally I wear like, you got to wear those pointy kind of dress shoes with a heel on them and your my feet normally hurt afterwards. And uh, I was wearing these cool, I think they're Addis is the the style. And I felt like I wanted to go skateboarding. Like I felt cool in them and groovy. I think wearing Vivo barefoot shoes, studies have shown that if you wear Vivo barefoot shoes for six months, your foot strength will increase by 60%. You get more feedback from the environment and they encourage you to move more. As we were saying, they're the only shoes we've worn for the last seven years and we've sought them out and become good friends with them. They're an amazing business, a B Corp business, and really about doing the best that they can do as a business to better the world. They've offered you 15% discount off any Vivo barefoot shoes. They have a full range of women's, men's, kids in all different styles. Uh, simply use the code HAPPYPAIR15 at the checkout. And really, we found it to be so beneficial for building strong knees, hips, backs. And for general, like I really find it helps me move more and feel more at home in my body. And what will that code give you? It gives you 15% discount off any pair of Vivo Barefoot shoes. Just go to vivobarefoot.com. And use the code HAPPYPAIR15 to get 15% off. So I even on a very, very busy day, I will, I will always do my meditation session in the morning or evening. And I find that if people start with five or 10 minutes and build up from there, it becomes quite manageable because you're not, you know, crashing and burning. You know, you start with two hours and then you never do it again because it's it's just too much. Uh, start with five or 10 minutes and build up from there. But then also um, practicing moments, moment to moment, little drops of meditation, like micro moments throughout the day is also very, very helpful and important. So that can be done anywhere. You can be, you know, you can be driving the car, you can be stuck in a queue, you can be at work, you can be anywhere, and you can just feel the ground under your feet, be aware of your breathing, just for a few seconds each time. So I always suggest it's good to do like 10 or 15 minutes of daily meditation, but then also these moments of mini integrations throughout the day. And that means you've always got time uh, because you're doing it while you're busy. 
Our brother's a good one. He's got a gong which goes off. I think it's on his phone or his laptop or something. But every hour there's a gong goes off and it's meant him to like go. Like in Plum Village. Yeah, it was like in Plum Village. It's me- I think he went there and did meditations. and uh, But it goes off every hour and it's to remind him, oh yeah, you're a human being, not a human doing. So take a couple of deep breaths. Get back to the yeah. you know, And then another friend, every time he gets in the car, he takes five deep breaths. Five yeah, like deep that. breaths and that's his habit. So it's it's kind of tra- using these portals or these gateways of washing the dishes. Maybe washing the dishes is your way to be, it's not a meditation in a formal sense, but it can be a time to be mindful and consistently focus on your breath or trying to set these triggers. Like maybe it's brushing your teeth because sometimes, you know the way, and this is one, uh, like my, my illustration of how mindless I can be, um, of like there's a two minute timer on the toothbrush and I find like every 30 seconds it beeps but I can't keep track of how many times it beeps like, and it's just for two minutes. So it's, I'm amazed how my mind can be so scatty just before. But I, th- I think it's very good to use ordinary activities like brushing your teeth, washing your hands, washing the dishes, ironing, cooking, gardening, cleaning. You know, these things we do where quite often we're on autopilot. We're doing the thing, but our mind is totally somewhere else. You can use those as mindfulness exercises. You just feel the brush against your tooth or as you're washing your hands, you feel the movement of the soap, the water, the hands. You can add mindfulness into the mix, whatever you're doing. Yeah, because I remember we did a VPA- did a number of Vipassana meditation courses a few years ago. And I remember there was one where Dave did the course and I was serving and I had, I had sat before that. And when you were serving, you were you were trying to apply mindfulness throughout daily activity so it was a wonderful opportunity to to integrate like often meditation is seen as this separate practice where i go off and i meditate and then during the day i just live my life whereas i think and the i may more, be a tyrant i, I could be, be a t- tyrant yeah i could be an absolute tyrant but but i think ultimately the goal is that you're mindful throughout the day and that ultimately creates more awareness and thus you can build more of the skill of happiness Well, that's definitely a mistake I made when I started off meditating is that I was doing quite um, like vigorous amounts of meditation sitting on my cushion, but then forgetting about it the rest of the time. You know, sometimes I would do a two hour meditation session and then feel really good about myself and then go off with the rest of my day and not connect with it. So then it doesn't really progress. It's much more effective to do 10 or 15 minutes meditation, but you are integrating it throughout the day, that would be better. And I learned how to do that after a while, and it made a huge difference where you are not separating your meditation and your daily life so much, but you're trying to bring it with you wherever you go. Um, I don't know if it's possible to be mindful all the time. Maybe some super advanced meditators can do that. I can't, but I know how to plug into that mindful moment regularly, especially in difficult situations and it totally changes how you view the situation. It's it's quite interesting when you learn how to relax in the middle of a storm, uh, like a metaphorical storm. Mm. Because that's almost like the theme of your book. Like your book is all about, you know, a handbook for hard times. It's very much about how to use these hard times as a capacity for growth, which, you know, I look at my own life and I look at the hardest times have been the greatest catalyst to growth. But I think what you're also kind of part of the the message is that, is that to, to, to get this inner resilience where that there is, you know, even amongst hard times and good times, that there is this a bit more of a, a de- the, the observer again within it. And wouldn't you agree that the hard times we've been through in our lives are the very things that have made us, it's given us more character, isn't it? I mean, at the time, it's awful when you're going through a hard time. 
But then you look back afterwards and think, yeah, that made me stronger or that taught me something about life or taught me something about how to be kinder to others. So in a way, my book is about noticing those difficult moments as they're happening and seeing them as opportunities for growth. And if you learn to meditate every day, then when the hard times come, you have tools at your disposal through which you can help your mind to handle the hard time very differently, even use it as food for spiritual growth. Like it's the ultimate skill set really to develop because it's not only is meditation, you know, say, for example, someone works hard and they save money. Yeah, they're financially, you know, in a better position, but meditation positively impacts every single aspect of your life. Because if you cultivate this skill, there's contentment through everything you do. Well, so it's more likely to be contentment amongst the ups and the downs of life. Yeah, of course, through more equanimity. I think it teaches you how to how to be happy no matter what. And when I say happy, I don't mean always feeling kind of ha ha hee hee, but more like how to how to stay positive in in difficult situations. That that's the kind of freedom that is really worth cultivating. Because life is hard, and e even when things are going well, we don't know what's around the corner. And so if we build up mental strength and a kind of sense of fearlessness, we're ready for what life might throw at us. And I personally have found these techniques really, really helpful in the darkest of times that I myself have been through. Um, I mean, I, I had COVID very, very severely right at the start of the pandemic. And I would say that meditation really, really rescued me in that situation because it helped me to go through the, I mean, it wasn't easy, but it helped me to go through the experience with, um, with more inner strength than I would have had without meditation. So you learn to apply it in the most difficult situations. And then those situations, you kind of look back and think, wow, that was horrible, but it kind of made me stronger and taught me something. So it was worthwhile going through it. Mm. I think it's a bit like um, my, we have a newborn, a little child or whatever, and she was six. We just bring her into hospital last night. You and your wife. And my, me and my wife, yeah, not me and Stephen here. Um, and uh, I was just in there and, and you're seeing so many other sick children. You're in a children's hospital and there's so much raw emotion that like I, I felt so vulnerable. Like I was I was welling up with tears at a number of times at just how how challenging it is as a parent of a sick child and how blessed I was that our child was sick, but she wasn't really sick like like some of the other kids. And it just brought up like the hard time. That experience brought up so much compassion for me for parents, all parents, because it's a really challenging thing. Like it's the most one of the most rewarding things you can do, but it comes with consistent challenges and it brought out compassion, which, you know, it's a common theme within your book. Again, it goes back about compassion that ultimately by facing these hard times and being to able to deal with them in a more equanimous way, we typically become more compassionate to ourselves and therefore to others. Could you talk a bit, bit about that, about compassion? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is really a central theme of the book is how to use hard times to help us to grow or cultivate uh, our sense of compassion, compassion for ourselves and compassion for others. I mean, there's two, there's two elements to that. And often we're really hard on ourselves and meditation helps you to be kinder to yourself, uh, mainly because when you meditate every day, you, you're teaching yourself how to um, 
be okay with difficult feelings and difficult experiences so you can almost kind of lean into the pain or move towards pain and discomfort, which sounds counterintuitive. You'd think, wow, wouldn't that make it worse? But actually you learn how to handle it better because you're more fearless. And that is the kindest thing you can do for yourself is to be okay with yourself and okay with discomfort. And then if you can then cultivate that more strongly, it spreads out in terms of compassion for others. And as you say, when you are there with your sick child and you see the other sick children and parents, there's a sense of empathy and compassion and your suffering has opened up your ability to see others with the eye, through the eyes of compassion. And then your suffering sort of has a purpose in a way, a value, a meaning, because it's taught you something about human nature. And compassion is a trainable skill. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a skill of the mind that we can train and develop. But I talk a lot in the book about forgiveness as, as a technique, you know, a method to, to, to change our relationships through learning how to forgive, which doesn't mean becoming a victim and, and condoning what people do with, when people are doing harmful things. It means to free our hearts from uh, rage and despair and resentment. Wow, how does one move more towards or develop or cultivate more of that skill of forgiveness? Because it's many of us are carrying around, you know, anger, resentment, resi begrudgeriness, whatever that word is, begrudgingness. And, and, and ultimately, when you're carrying these things, it seems like that you're hurting yourself. Yeah. Yeah. In Buddhism, they say carrying the anger is like holding on to a kind of hot piece of coal. It burns you. You're holding on to it. And it's, it's not that we deliberately hold on to our anger. We don't sit there thinking, you know, I really love being angry and I'm really enjoying the anger. But it, it's like a sort of compulsion. We, we're, we're stuck in the sense of hurt, rage, resentment, anger. But it, it is burning us. And forgiveness is not so much about the other person. It's about us. It's not about letting somebody off the hook. But it's about learning how not to be so stuck with the anger. And when you meditate, you're learning how, or you're teaching yourself how to not be so um, heavily wrapped up in your own emotions. Um, it's like a sort of um, an addiction. We have an addiction to uh, painful emotions. It's not something we enjoy, but we kind of do it without thinking. And meditation sort of thins down that addiction, like thinning down the glue in our minds. And then I think there's a further step, which is with forgiveness training. It's very much about looking at the situation from a kind of all-round viewpoint, not just my my perspective on the situation. When I'm in a conflict with somebody, can I also think of their perspective and how maybe they are not really out to get me, but they're just caught up in their own stress and it's sort of coming out towards me, but it's not actually anything to do with me. It's their own pain and their own suffering. And then maybe compassion can start to arise and a sense of understanding, which doesn't mean you just stand there and, and sort of let people abuse you, but you understand them from a deeper perspective and then you don't need to feel so hurt and so um, taking it so personally. Mm, there, That's a huge thing, learning to take things. Could, could you, like anyone listening there, like most of us have been conditioned and programmed in life, you know, as individuals, that we take things personally. We really do. It's 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 been part of the cultural programming. 
what tips would you have to help us to take things less personally? Because that alone is a huge gift we could give. You know, if I could give that one more to myself, I absolutely would love to. Well, I think it's all about letting go and it's all about not getting so you know, stuck in uh, old habits, old ways of thinking. Like you say, we're conditioned. We have this strong habit of always taking things personally and taking things like too seriously and getting too bogged down in things. If you meditate regularly, um, you, you're um, retraining yourself to have more positive habits, uh, a habit of letting go, a habit of uh, rebalancing yourself emotionally, also a habit of compassion. The more compassion we have for others, the less invested we'll be in ego, that sense of me, me, me. And it's almost that that becomes sort of smoothed out more and we can think more of how to benefit others and how to be kinder to others. And that doesn't mean we become a martyr or a doormat. It just means we don't need to be so wrapped up in ourselves. We we are in a culture now where it's very much about the self, isn't it? The culture oh, of self, yes. the individual, which has its uh, has its problems because the self is actually quite a, it's unsatisfiable, that's the word, insatiable. We are insatiable. The more we want, the more we want. And the more we don't, the more we don't want. So the self is just an impossible conundrum that doesn't work for us. Yeah, it's, it's a ferocious animal. It really, really is. And it seems to, the culture like uh, back to what we started when we talked about fear, like it just brings up this, like the current culture, it, it, it's wonderful and it's it makes us kind of very comfortable, which I think is almost the antithesis of what you're talking about is that using these hard times, you know, like embracing that the, the challenges within life because within that is the greatest catalyst to unlock forgiveness, compassion, you know, and deeper meaning within our life. Whereas current culture seems to be at the other, the opposition to that where it wants us to be comfortable and to move away, to from move away times. from discomfort in every sense. Yeah. And wouldn't you say that we are materially more comfortable than we've ever been in Definitely. history and yet we're emotionally more uncomfortable. I mean, we're, we have so many physical comforts around us, but such a sense of inner discomfort and we've, put so much effort into developing our external world and not much into internal development. So we end up lacking resilience and we don't know how to handle things when hard times come along. So there's nothing wrong with living a comfortable life, but it's much more important to develop an inner sense of freedom and fearlessness, and then we can handle things better and be less uh, constantly obsessed with running away from difficulties. If we stop running and look directly at the difficulty, maybe it starts to dissolve a bit because, uh, you know, what you what you resist kind of carries on. I think it was Carl Jung who said, "What you resist persists," and so if you learn to stand, turn around, and face the thing that you have been resisting, it starts to change. I certainly found that was something that helped me a lot when I was experiencing panic attacks. I, I used to have a lot of panic attacks, and I found that I would panic about the panic. Oh, and try wow. and panic. And when I learned to sit in the panic and meditate in that, it, it's, it, it makes it very different because you're almost welcoming the thing that you're pushing away. And then the pushing away or well, the resistance starts to melt a bit and the thing itself is nowhere near as bad as you thought it was. Yeah, there's a fear of fear. Res well, resistance seems to be, like we described it as, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is how to live more fearless. 
fitness, fearlessness. Uh, but it seems like resistance is part of that process of fear. Like the resistance seems to be part of the root of the issue as well. Is that the case? Yeah, and resistance is a habit that creates more resistance. You know, we we keep resisting, pushing away, running away from things, and that means we'll always find there's something to run away from, even if we're in an incredibly comfortable situation. There's always going to be something because we have a habit of resistance in our minds, and that habit is always seeking expression. It's seeking something to resist. So until we look at the habit itself, we're always going to find life is problematic for us. And meditation can help dissolve resistance and it can bring more inner resilience, really, regardless of what's going on. So so even just to bring it back to some course, so, so you said to start with kind of five to 10 minutes. And does it matter if people don't have a meditation? You know, we're in a culture of we need the gear. I need new running shoes because I'm going to take up running. I need your gym gear because I'm going to the gym gear. So do people need to go buy a new meditation cushion if they don't have one? Or can I just or sit or in a, a new chair? meditation clock or a new meditation room? Do Maybe I need, need any gear or can I just sit on a chair or the couch? Or what, what are your thoughts about seating positions? Um, well, you know, we always think we need equipment, but meditation has been around for centuries before we had all that equipment. So, you know, we don't need anything really. It's all just about sitting where you are. I mean, sure, it, it, people do like to meditate uh, sitting cross-legged on the floor with a cushion. Um, you know, that that that's good. But you can also meditate on a chair. Uh, you just sit on a chair, sitting nice and straight, and you um, have a good posture, um, but you... Um, um don't have to be um limited to the situation you're in you can meditate indoors or outdoors yeah because often we get lost thinking it's the equipment we need because ultimately the whole practice of meditation is accepting what arises and often it's discomfort like i i know myself when you sit there for 10 minutes there's my legs sore. oh i want to scratch my head oh i gotta go do that and ultimately oh, i forgot to lock the car door oh no geez i forgot to get back to Bill or Bob or whatever, you know, the mind is coming uh, up in a million. Excuses. You got to sit and observe those sensations and watch them dissolve. It's through that observational process that you realize, oh, it's gone. I didn't actually really need to call Bob. All is okay. And it's ultimately learning to accept these things, isn't it? The discomfort of life, as you said. Yeah. And I think with meditation is that you're, you're giving yourself that time each day where no matter what, you're going to sit through those 10 minutes or 15 minutes. I'm sure if the fire alarm goes off you know get up and leave the building but basically you don't need to keep jumping up to do things make tea write emails you're really just letting yourself have that time where you face the present moment with a sense of equanimity acceptance and even joy yeah i love that and in terms of meditation there's like but this is me just going top level it appears there are three main varieties number one you can sit and observe your breath Number two, sit with sensation, observe sensation. Number three, it might be a mantra. It could be an image of someone that you're looking towards. Are they the kind of main varieties if you're to group them and separate them? There are many, many types. And uh, often they do involve focusing on the senses, such as the sense of touch with the breath. You know, the breath is a tactile sensation or it can be a visual object or it can be sound. Um, in in my books, I, I give lots of different techniques which can be a sense of that choosing one that suits you or it can be a progression through a, a chain of techniques over many months or years um so yeah the way you group them is is how it is sometimes described but also there are many many more techniques mm. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. And uh, so, so anyone listening, a lot of people, some people will say, I tried meditation, Tubton. Like I tried it. You know, I did it for, I did a 30 day challenge and I did five minutes. Just isn't for me. Like it just, it's not for me. My mind's too busy. My mind's running this way and that way. What do you say to that person? I think the problem is that we maybe have an assumption that you're supposed to not have a busy mind. So then you sit down to meditate and the mind is really busy and there's loads of distraction. Then you feel you've failed and then you don't want to do it anymore. But the whole problem is based on assuming that you're supposed to clear the mind. And that's not what meditation is about. In fact, the busier your mind, the better, because you've got more chances to keep coming back to the breast. The thought that took you away is the very thing that brings you back to the breast. And coming back is what makes you strong. So actually, the busy mind is not an obstacle. It's an opportunity. So I, I, I hear you. It's very true that people have tried meditation. They say, oh, it's not for me. My mind was too busy. My mind is racing. I can't get it to slow down. But I think that's all built, all based on a, a misconception about meditation, uh, an idea that you're supposed to be completely tranquil and have nothing going on. That, that's not meditation. That's like being unconscious. That's like being asleep, something, you know, it's, it's actually about working with the thoughts rather than feeling that they are invading your meditation, ruining, it, ruining everything. Yeah, that seems okay, very okay. welcoming. And then for someone who's going, I can't sit still. I find it really hard to sit still. I've been recently diagnosed with ADHD. I'm restless. I find it really hard to sit still. Can I walk and meditate? Can I run and meditate? What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, I think that if you find it very, very hard to sit still, you could start by focusing on mindful movement, walking, running, exercising, doing yoga, stretching, gardening, washing the dishes, cleaning, cleaning the floor, you know, doing things mindfully so that you learn how to bring meditation into activities. And then that starts to get you more used to the process of meditating. And then you might find that you actually have a will to sit down and try and go deeper, but you're kind of easing yourself into it by working with your own struggle. So if you have a struggle with sitting still, use that as part of the meditation and eventually it could become easier to sit still. Well, so, so it almost like like it's rebranding meditation as struggle practice. I must go do my 10 minute struggle practice because <laughs> it's almost like you're sitting there struggling through 10, 15 minutes, maybe build it up to 20 minutes and your mind keeps wandering and you keep going into the to-do list and it's like, get back here, you get back. It's struggling with this wild animal and well, learning to accept it. Well, kind of, but I think that it, it doesn't need to be a struggle and it doesn't need to be that you're kind of like aggressively pulling your mind back to the breath. It's it's much more gentle. It's actually about recognizing that your mind has wandered and then gently coming back to the breath and being okay with that because otherwise it could become a very harsh process. I know when I started meditating, I hated it. I mean, I really, really hated it for the first few years because I found it so... Um, it, there's so much struggle trying to keep 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 my mind still. I had so, uh, I had such a feeling that I had to get rid of those distractions, and the whole thing changed for me when I I started to see that the distractions are simply part of what the mind does, and all you need to do is keep reconnecting, 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 and the process then becomes much more gentle. It doesn't have to be a struggle at all. That's very encouraging to hear. It really is that it's a gentle, calm, you know, that it's very much about self-loving, not about self-flagellous and maybe rebranding in a struggle practice is a stupid idea. But I was <laughs> say, I was saying it in jest, but now that you've clarified it, I'm like, oh yeah, that's totally true. It's about kindness, compassion, self-compassion. And 
definitely it's about kindness, compassion, self-acceptance. It, it's a very gentle process. And for many people, it, it does feel harsh when they first try it, but that's only because they think they're supposed to empty their minds. And that's not true. That's not the way to meditate. Yeah. And you yourself, Tupton, um, with like I've done 10-day retreats, things like that. You did a four-year retreat at one point, wasn't it? With a nine-month silent aspect to it, which is, you know, pretty amazing. Well, hardcore. Oh, the four-year retreat, we did silence for five months. Um, but the even the rest of the retreat, you don't get to talk much because even though it's a group retreat, you're alone in your room uh, doing your own meditation sessions. So it's quite a solitary experience. And that four-year retreat was really hard and really difficult, but incredibly helpful for me because I had to really learn to get to grips with my own um, mental health, really, because I went in there and got very depressed, really depressed. I was quite shocked. I thought, oh, I'm in a retreat. I'm supposed to be all you know, happy and doing my meditation, but here I am depressed and anxious and having even blew up into panic attacks. It was quite, it was a very difficult experience, but what was a huge breakthrough for me was when I learned how to meditate in those difficult emotional situations and learn how to give myself some compassion when I'm going into that kind of uh, misery and unhappiness to learn to be okay with that and learn to give love and compassion to that part of yourself that you've been pushing away for so long. So for me, the retreat started very, very harsh and ended up quite gentle. Wow, it's almost like, and it's ultimately, it's as you've described through your book, it's leaning into these challenging situations or emotions. And it's true that that that's the fearlessness that we, if we all want to be happier, that's the path to take. I think so. And it's, it's counterintuitive at first because you think, what, well, don't tell me to lean into my pain. Surely it's going to get worse. But then you start to try it and you realize that what's making it worse is the resistance. And it's not what you thought. We, we thought that the pain was the problem. Actually, it's the resistance that's the problem. And that's a very subtle difference, but it makes, it makes for a massive transformation when you learn to work with that. Wow, so in that sense, it's the epitome of surrender and accept you know, what is actually happening. Yeah, but surrender without feeling that it's like you're resigning yourself to pain and misery. It's more that you're opening up to life with a sense of joy, love, compassion, enthusiasm, sort of welcoming everything, even the difficult stuff. And that makes you really strong, not like a kind of grim resignation where you just kind of give up. It's more that you're opening your heart to the things in life that normally you would push away. And that's really a power. It's a power that we all have within us. And if if we practice that, we, we can become stronger, kinder, more connected to ourselves, more connected to others. I think meditation is what the world needs now more than ever because we are living in times of such uh, harsh judgment and negativity and fear, blame. And we need meditation to create a more compassionate future for ourselves and our world 100%. wow like I, I i agree a million percent with what you're saying because i can certainly look at our current culture and i i experience it with myself where life just it's it's more overwhelming than it has ever been and 
there's a lot of people living at the edge going, oh my God, like how do we cope with this? Like there's, I need to externally please so many people and I've got to say the right words and I've got to look good. And I, you know, there's, there's all these social expectations and pressure, which I know are all a lot kind of, they're social constructs, but as a product of the culture, all of us feel them. We just feel them on a daily basis. So to be a little less immune or to become, you know, more immune, to become more immune little by little or have a tool where we can be more driven from the internal rather than the external. Cause I know as a product of our culture, I'm consistently find myself looking outside of myself for happiness or fulfillment or joy. Whereas really that internal journey is probably more likely to bear fruit than the external one. Yeah. And don't, don't you think that part of it's because we live in a, a culture where the economy, uh, for the economy to, to um, thrive, we have to be told all the time you need more and you don't have enough. And there's something wrong with you and there's something missing in your life unless you buy this product or unless you have this or have that. So we're constantly being told that we're not enough and what we have is not enough. And so I think the most rebellious thing we can do is to stop listening to that and listen to our own hearts and find inner peace and inner contentment. And sure, we we, we buy things and have things in our life, but they, they're secondary to our own inner strength that that needs to come first yeah, yeah. And a lot of it is to be less attached i wonder if you could talk briefly about attachment because this is something that it's it's one of the foundations of fearlessness it's to be, being less attached and as you say like when a strong emotion comes when you're less attached to it you'll just come and sit with it and as you sit with it it turns into flower oh my god that fear oh it's a beautiful flower it's actually. a lily growing out of the mud yeah dun 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 I love that image, the flower growing out of the mud, because it, it's it's like the out of the out of the difficulty comes freedom and comes beauty, and yeah, attachment at the deepest level, we're all incredibly attached to our own thoughts and emotions, and that attachment often makes us suffer. So if we can learn not to detach, but to not be so driven, not be so driven by those things, and not be so controlled. That's a kind of freedom. I think the opposite of attachment is freedom rather than detachment. Mm. And I think it's a very powerful thing. And we live in a world where we're obviously very obsessed with the idea of freedom, but maybe we only think of it externally, external freedoms. But what about internal freedom? Freeing our minds. I think that's that's the path worth following and worth cultivating. Oh, I want some of that. Yes, please. Internal freedom. Wow. With a chocolate flake in the top, please. Ah, oh, that's 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 the we've just hit the jackpot, lads. Internal freedom at all costs. That's yeah, that sounds really because in yeah. essence, like modern day culture is telling us to we're barking up the wrong tree. You know, like modern day culture, it's as you said, and it's the at the root of capitalism. For the economy to grow, we need to consume more, want more, need more, avert more. Whereas ultimately, if we do want to feel more happy, which you've described in your first book as a skill, it's ultimately to start to move away from, to move to, away, to, to lean into, lean into these, these stop averting so much and leaning into these harder things. Yeah. And, and it's true that for, for our economy to thrive, we, we have to be constantly exposed to messaging that tells us you need more. You've got to get more. And the problem with that searching for more is that there'll always be more that we're searching for because the searching leads to more searching. 
So we, we want more and then we might get what we want and then we find we want even more, it's not enough. And it's simply because we have a habit that just grows, a habit of wanting and needing. And if we can turn around and learn to let go of that and be more okay with what is, that would be freedom, wouldn't it? That would be a deep level of internal freedom. I'm not sitting here saying I've achieved that. I'm just saying that I'm working on that myself and trying to share these techniques with others because I think it's a very valuable lesson that we can all learn. Oh, it's ultimately one of those internal profound. freedom. It's such a like because freedom being the opposite of attachment. Because there's so many things like we're attached to our own ego, our own sense of self. Like, oh, you're a bad person. Oh no, I'm not. I'm a really nice person. That's like attachment, you know, attachment. Whereas what you're talking about is internal freedom of being much more resilient of these things. I think it's uh, something we all want. It's what we're searching for in every moment. Everything we do is somehow a quest for freedom. We don't want to be limited. We don't want to be tied down. We don't want to be controlled. We want to be free. But I wonder if we maybe look in the wrong places. We 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 look in places that make us less free. We 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 try to free ourselves from suffering by running away from the suffering, and that's of course a natural, understandable thing to do. But the paradox of it all is: the more we run away from it, the worse it gets. So maybe we need to start doing the opposite because it hasn't worked for us so far. You know, we're, we, we're, we are materially, culturally so sophisticated and advanced now in the 21st century, and yet we're still not happy. So something's missing. Something didn't quite work out for us. So maybe we need to try and do the opposite and look within instead of outside. That was powerful. I'm, I'm like, yes! Uh, but sign us up, Tupton. And ultimately, the root of it is to meditate. Ultimately, meditation is a vital life skill that should be up there with brushing our teeth. It should be up there, and it's an essential daily practice that, through doing, we will be we will be in a, we will be mentally stronger to deal with the ups and downs of life. I agree, and I think the reason why people find it hard to meditate is because of this strange attitude around, oh, I need to get rid of my thoughts. And when I meditate and my mind is busy, I'm doing it wrong and I'm failing. Just throw all that out the window and, and reframe what you think meditation is. It's much, much easier than people maybe assume. It, it's just about being present and then your mind takes you away and you keep coming back gently to the present moment. And that makes you strong. It's, it's not about uh, being empty and having no thoughts. That would be like being a robot or something. It's about being human and being being alive and being being yourself, being who you, who we really are, rather than maybe getting stuck in ideas of who we think we are. It's a beautiful one because even by clarifying that, you know, certainly uh, my preconception sometimes has been, oh, I don't want to become this detached, dispassionate, cold. cold, indifferent person that almost talks about themselves in the third person. It's like I want to be an engaged, passionate, loving, free human. Um, so that's a great distinction. Uh, and and that's why we need to bring compassion into our practice, because as you say, if it's just about detaching and letting go, you might think, oh, is that going to turn me into a kind of, yeah, like a heartless robot? But no, the whole point of meditation is to grow and cultivate our loving kindness and compassion towards ourselves and others and become more engaged with life and more um, living life to the full. But what that really means is learning to handle each experience with a sense of 
resilience, strength and power and love. It's all about love, really. At the bottom bottom line is it's about loving kindness and compassion. Jeez, yum. Yum, yum, one, yum. One final thing I'd love to just talk about is just happiness is a skill. Because uh, recently we did a podcast and we're servants to our emotions. Most of us, we're servants to our emotions. When the emotions are more positive, we're more positive. When our emotions are more negative or challenging, we're negative and we're, you know, in a state of flux. And in your first book, you talk about how, how happiness is a skill. It's a choice. It's something that we consciously can cultivate. I wonder if we could talk briefly about that because if you ask anyone what do they want, or any parent, what do you want for your child? I just want them to be happy, is the most common answer, at least I've come across. And and I think culturally we make an assumption that the happiness is based on material things. I have to have the right lifestyle around me, and then and only then will I be happy. That's the assumption many people make. Whereas I think happiness as a skill is where you learn how to handle your emotions and thoughts better so that you can be happy no matter what, rather than happy if, when, or because. So it's about unconditional happiness rather than conditional happiness. We're in a culture of conditional happiness, but it doesn't work. I mean, it's, if, it's not that if you have all the wealth and beauty and best relationships and all of that, that then you're automatically happy. That's not true. We all know that you can be wealthy and miserable. You can be poor and happy. It's it's all relative, isn't it? It's it's about the mind. Happiness is an internal state. It's a cultiv. It it can be cultivated internally, even in difficult situations. Unconditional happiness. I like it. Unconditional happiness for internal freedom. Ah, oh, that's your. If you could sell it, like you'd be, you'd, it's, that's just that's. I you don't want to sell it. That's the thing. No, no, it's not selling it. It's just that. That's. I think that's what we're all looking for. Like it really is unconditional happiness, where we feel internally free. Because then, whatever else happens on the outside, it's irrelevant. Because you know, we have this. We've lovely, cultivated lovely this skill. safe haven inside. But I think the key point is that, that that doesn't need to make us kind of switched off from life. Like, oh, I'm all right and. I, I'm just going to get on with my own happiness. There has to be a sense of compassion and a sense of reaching out to those who are suffering and trying to help them and trying to bring benefit to the world. Otherwise, the path of meditation could become a little bit, you know, all about the self. Like, I'm just going to you know, sort myself out. It doesn't matter about anybody else. It totally matters about everybody else because the only way to to really progress spiritually is through love and through compassion and through getting out there in the world and trying to be of benefit because we are all connected. We are not just ourselves. We're we're like one breathing living organism as a human race or also animals and all, all species and the planet too. We're all together and there needs to be a sense of that compassion and interconnectedness. I think that's what makes the the meditation journey more powerful. Right. So the mythological idea of Someone, some man, woman retreating to the cave and meditating to reach some great high point of enlightenment. And that's kind of, it's not really like what you're suggesting is that it's really. People do go to caves, people go to retreats, but why? Is so they can develop skills through which when they come out of that cave, they can help others. There's a reason for being in the cave so that you, when you come out, you've got the strength to give to the world. 
It's all about the reason, the motivation, the intention. So whenever I meditate, I will sit down at the start of the session and I make a, a promise or an intention in my mind. I'm, I'm, I want to do this for the benefit of others. But sowing the seed of compassion at the start of the session. Then at the end of the session, in my mind, I, I think now I dedicate this practice to compassion for others, dedicate this to the happiness of all beings. Because what you're doing there is you're you're very skillfully injecting these moments of compassion into your meditation so it becomes less selfish and more about service. That's a lovely distinction. So what do you say at the start again? I start the session by praying or developing the intention or motivation. May I do this practice for the benefit of all beings. Beautiful. And at the end of the session... I dedicate this practice to the benefit, the happiness, the freedom of all beings so that you kind of know why you're doing it and you're reminding yourself of that deeper, compassionate aim with each session of meditation. And you're ultimately holding the integrated nature of the human experience that we like to believe that we're isolated. We're not we like to, but we, we often believe we're isolated, but ultimately we're part of this greater whole and we have our small little part, our grain of sand on the beach to, to carry yeah, like uh, in Buddhist texts, they talk about drops of water and the ocean. The ocean is actually just the sum total of the drops. So compassion is where those drops become part of something bigger. They become the ocean. Mm, lovely. Oh, my God. This is beautiful, Tubson. Great reminder. Ah, Such an important reminder. God. Divine. Divine. It's been beautiful. So inspiring. So motivating. And how's your book doing? How's, how's, how are you finding being out talking publicly? I'm sure you do loads of it, but how are you finding being out in the world and, you know, how's all the book going? People are giving lovely feedback. They're saying they find the book is helping them a lot. You know, people are telling me that the techniques are helping them to handle suffering in a way that they haven't known before that they could. So that makes me really happy when the book has that kind of feedback from people having an emotional response to it that's positive. And yeah, I've been giving a lot of talks and um, uh, people have asked really great questions. You know, the one question I get all the time is, I try to meditate, but I struggle so much and I give up. And I'm really kind of jumping up and down on my soapbox saying to people, it's much easier than you think. Stop trying to clear your mind. That's the problem. That's why you find it so hard is because you're trying to get rid of your thoughts. It's not about that. <laughs> That's the one thing that consistently, it's like a boomerang. It just keeps coming back. There's that question again. Hello, my dear friend. How are you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well th thanks so much for your time today, Tubton. It's been an absolute treat. And I ha I've downloaded your book to start listening to it. I've listened to bits of it, but I haven't gone. I look forward to really delving deep into it and particularly the practice of it. So A Handbook for Hard Times, A Monk's Guide to Fearless Living, which I absolutely would love more of that, more internal freedom, as we, as we said, and more unconditional happiness. Thank you so much. I had a really great time with you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully we meet you someday. While we have you, once a week we write a newsletter. It's called Happier. It's got simple, tried and tested practices to make your life better. We include recipes and practices that you can apply on a daily basis to make your life happier. We've had lots of people say before that it's really helped make their life better. So you can sign up on the happypairs.ie, our weekly newsletter called Happier.